One of the things that um, throughout the ministry the Lord has blessed me with um, that I have found myself having to do is to try to put myself in the place of those that I am counseling. And and so many times that has been trying, and again, it's, it's a mental exercise, but to the best of my ability to put myself into the horrors in which they lived and they, they grew up. And so and the Lord has been teaching me empathy through this process. And, and that's something that I would do regularly one-on-one with people in our church uh, or even in our community sometimes as they would come. But I noticed that there was a shift in that individual empathy to a, a kind of a world empathy. And, and I was trying to think about that this week, and, and it really, I, I used to watch the world news and think, oh man, that's bad. You know, like that's happening over there, and next story, right? Like it just didn't phase me. Um, and it, it wasn't really until um, COVID, I think, was the first time that I, I really tried to start putting myself into other people, other people's shoes around the world. And, and it was through conversations, through individual conversations, but I would talk with the missionaries that our church supports. I would talk to the church planters that we would support, and they would all be telling me all of the different ways their government was responding to COVID. And I'll be honest, most of the time I left those conversations saying, thank you, Lord, that I live in Florida. Thank you, Lord, that I live in America. Because the the restrictions, no matter how bad we think we had it, were nothing compared to what other countries around the world were doing. And and so that kind of began that mental exercise of of talking with them and trying to put myself in their place. And what what would I do if I, if I were the pastor of their church and they were they're literally being told you cannot leave your house, you will be arrested. That's that's what happened in Guatemala. Like there, there was. A strict curfew, and if you weren't going to get groceries, you were arrested. How would I do ministry in that context? What what would it look like? And that that's kind of how it started. But I've noticed since COVID that that thought process has remained for me, and so now it's actually kind of hard for me to watch the world news and and to see what's happening all over the place. And I, I try to put myself in their shoes and think, okay, if, if I were an Ecuadorian Christian this week, how would I feel that just because he spoke out against drug lords running his country? I've especially struggled and prayed and thought about our brothers and sisters in Ukraine since this war started. And we see story after story of Russia lobbing missiles seemingly indiscriminately. And, you know, there, there's some expectation when there is a war that you're going to target military bases. You're going to target um, armament and, and uh, uh, weaponry and that kind of thing. But increasingly, Russia just seems to be targeting apartment complexes where civilians live. Churches like the... Transfiguration Cathedral, one of the oldest Orthodox churches 
It was consecrated in 1809. It was bombed and destroyed. This was a world heritage site. They, they don't care. In addition to schools, playgrounds, hospitals, I, I just happened to catch a quick story this morning of a rocket that landed and killed a six-year-old yesterday. And, and anytime Ukraine defends itself and launches like a little drone attack, they don't have the capability that Russia has, but they, they launch something inside of Russia, it causes a tiny little bit of damage comparatively. Vladimir Putin would get up and just rail against the, like, how dare these people send a drone to my city? Why would they do that? They are terrorists, he would say. How can something be a terrorist move in the midst of a war that you started, that you caused? The Ukrainians didn't start the war, he did. A war in which he's killing thousands of people. And thousands more will die because the grain that feeds so much of that part of the world flows through those ports. Those ports that are being attacked and cut off by Russia. Vladimir Putin is one of those people that seems to enjoy killing people. He will kill them with rockets. He will kill them with missiles. He will kill them on the ground. Send in ground troops like the Wagner Group that not only killed but committed heinous, heinous acts of terror that I can't even describe here. And then you think about the ripple effect of all the people in Africa that literally live or die without this grain that he's cutting off. And without the grain, the cost of everything else is going up and that's creating hardship upon hardship. And yet he doesn't care. If anything, he seems adamant that he is right and the Ukrainians are wrong. And therefore, anyone who helps the Ukrainians, i.e. us, are wrong as well. How do you as a, a Christian live in that reality for the last 18 months? Waking up every morning not knowing if your apartment complex is going to have a giant hole in it. If you're going to be alive, if, if your mother's and father's apartment complex is going to have a giant rocket blast inside of it. These bombs are not because of anything you've done, but simply because of an evil man. An evil man that loves bloodshed. We're going to see a man very much like Vladimir Putin in our psalm this morning. On the world stage so that he will food and weapons and so David leaves the group of men. He comes up individually to an old acquaintance of his, a priest named Ahimelech. And David asks of the priest if he would give him and his men some food to eat and, and if there were any weapons that he might borrow from the temple. Now David at this point lied to Ahimelech. And he told him that he was on a special mission for Saul. So the priest gave David and his men food to eat. Uh, the sword of Goliath happened to be there in that temple. 
And so they offered that to him as well. And, and he told David that he could take it. But there was a certain man there praying to God named Doag, the Edomite. And Doag saw everything that happened. Now, imagine you're Doag and you're standing back at some distance. You don't hear the interchange. You don't hear what's being said by David to Ahimelech. What would that look like to you? You know David's an enemy of Saul's. From his perspective, we have this priest who's conspiring against the current king with the future king. So he's aligning himself in his mind with David. And sometimes later, Saul is looking for David and Doag speaks up and says, Oh, well, I, I, you know, I don't know um, where he's at, but I, I know where he's been. And Saul's like, well, tell me. Where 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 has he been? Who, what do you mean? He said, well, there's this priest that was giving him shelter and aid and weapons and food and acquiring of the Lord for him. Now, imagine what Saul must have been thinking at this point, by the way, Doag puts that, <laughs> right? Who is this priest plotting against me? God has anointed this man king, and now there's this priest of God who is working with him. And Saul demanded to know who he was. So Doag tells him, and he calls the priest into the court, and he asks him, Why are you supporting David, my enemy? But this is the first time Ahimelech learned that David was not working for Saul because based on what David had told him, he was on a secret mission. Don't tell anybody, I'm doing this for the king. Because David lied and conveniently left out that part when he was asking for support, that he was Saul's enemy. Ahimelech had just gone off the assumption that David was, after all, the king's son-in-law. He was the captain of the army. And he just assumed that he was on a mission for Saul, like he said. So when Ahimelech finds out that Saul is angry, he's truly surprised. Because he thought he was supporting the king. Not helping this traitor, David, but he thought he was doing something to serve his king. But Saul at this point is so enraged and so angry, he just doesn't believe him. And so he orders the guards to kill Ahimelech and the priests of that temple. Now, there were 85 of them. But the guards feared the Lord more than they feared Saul. And the guards said, no. This is a line we will not cross. But this just enrages Saul. I've got this anointed king who's from my own house. I've got this priest who's offering him aid. And now I've got these guards who will not even do what I tell them to do. So he turns to Doag, the Edomite, and says, you do it. And Doag, who cares more 
about the king's approval then God's approval was more than happy to carry out the violence. And so he goes and he kills 85 priests from the land of Nob. But he didn't just stop there. No, he, he killed every woman and child and animal connected to those priests. Only one member of Ahimelech's family escaped and made his way back to David. And he told David everything that had happened. And we find David responding in two ways. The first way that David responded was by blaming himself. David said in 1 Samuel twenty-two twenty-two. David said, I knew on that day when Doag the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. I have occasioned death, the death of all the persons of your father's house. David took responsibility. Something I will point out if you go back and read through 1 Samuel, Saul never does. One of the ways to know the righteous from the unrighteous is the ability to take responsibility for when you fail. And we see David doing that here in this text in, in 1 Samuel twenty two twenty two. He he takes responsibility. I I lied. This this was my fault. But as you study through the line of Saul, you see that he never takes responsibility for his mistakes. David knew the death of all these people was his fault. Because he had lied to the priest. David's second response was to write Psalm 52. And this psalm gives us insight into what we should do when we feel overcome by evil men. David is going to model for us what it looks like to take our concerns to God. Because ultimately, God is the only one in this situation that can bring the justice required for at least these 85 priests. But in reality, we're probably looking at closer to 300. The Septuagint records 305. And that's probably the priests and their families that it's recording there. Not to mention all the animals that were killed as well. Now, again, as I prepare for sermons and as I study, I, a good exercise for you as you're reading your Bible is to slow down and try to put yourself into the place of the people you are reading about. Can you imagine being that sole survivor of Ahimelech's family? I mean, I, I, I think about... Those scenes, maybe some of you have seen them this week from Maui, of just the complete and utter destruction. The, the death toll just every day just keeps climbing. And the interviews of people that lost their whole family, their whole business, livelihood, they lost everything. This, this is where we find this sole survivor of Ahimelech's family. And before we look at David's response in this psalm, I want to ask you a question. Look, 
Look into your own heart. How would you respond if you were in this situation? Because of some evil man who wanted to look good in front of a king, he killed everyone and everything you knew and you loved. What would be your response? Now, as I meditated on this question this week, because I'm I'm not asking you to do anything I'm not going to do myself. I got to be honest with you. Um, I, I felt inclined to channel my inner Liam Neeson from the movie Taken and, and say something like he said after his daughter was kidnapped, right? I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for ransom, I got no money. But what I do have is a very particular set of skills. Skills that I've acquired over a lifetime. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. That's where my heart goes. And maybe it's a father thing. Like, again, just sitting there thinking about my family being wiped out. I'm thinking of all the ways I can make this right. Just being honest. If everything, if, if I wake up tomorrow and every one of you are gone because of one evil man, I want to make sure he's with y'all as fast as possible, standing before the Lord. That, that's where my heart goes. I wish it didn't, but that's where it goes. And, and maybe that's you as well this morning. And I encourage you, confess that and be honest about that to the Lord. I would be tempted to get revenge. Maybe you're in a better place than I am. But that, that, as I meditated on this question, that, that's just where my mind went. But I want you to notice where David goes this morning. And we're going to put this up on the screen, short nine verses. I'm going to ask that you read it with us. And encourage you that this this is one of those acts of unity as a church. As we read, and if you're reading too fast, slow down. And if you're reading too slow, speed up. So that we can be unified as we read this together. Starting in verse 1. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor. You worker of deceit, you love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. Selah. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. Selah. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name. For it is good in the presence of the godly. 
Amen. Psalm 52 expresses David's outrage over Saul and Doag's evil actions and looks to God for justice. Instead of being like me and wanting to take justice into my own hands, David is turning our attention away from that natural inclination toward God and asking God to do what only God can do. If you're taking notes, I want to break down this short psalm just in in three headings. Verses 1 through 4 will be, The evil man reveals his heart with his words. The evil man reveals his heart with his words. Verse 5, God's swift judgment. God's swift judgment. And then finally, in verses 6 through 9, the repentance, the repentant trust and praise. Let's look at these three and then we'll pull some application out this morning. The evil man reveals his heart with his words. We see this in verses 1 through 4. First, David ridicules his foe because of his wicked heart. David, he opens by addressing his his adversary, again, likely Doag, with an aggressive question. He asks him why he boasts in evil. In what appears to be sarcasm, he addresses him by calling him, oh mighty man, right? Like like he, he thinks he's some kind of hero. Like Doag thinks, look, I've done what the king wanted me to do. And, and, and he thinks that his butchery and somehow is a heroic act. And David is like, you fool, right? Like you think you're a hero, but you're a zero. And and so he's using sarcasm here to, to, to help the reader understand that David is denouncing his false confidence in worldly wisdom, right? Because if you, if you think about this from an earthly perspective, Doing something the king wants you to do that nobody else is willing to do is going to curry you favor with the king. And if the king is the ultimate authority in the land, that makes perfectly good sense, doesn't it? Position yourself next to the most powerful person in the world. (laughs) From a worldly standpoint, that makes perfect sense. But even the guards were smart enough to know that Saul's not the most powerful man in the room. God is. And so David is helping us to see here the foolishness of this man lining himself with this worldly wisdom of, I'm going to scratch the king's back. That means one day he'll scratch my back. Second, Doag and Saul revealed the depravity of a wicked mind. These were not men who happened into sin. (laughs) Right? Doag didn't stumble with his spear and impale 85 people by accident. No, no, he he was planning, he was scheming. These are the kind of men who stay up at night and they're crafting plans to profit by harming others. The mention of plot here, plots here recalls the, the plans of the enemies of Yahweh back in Psalm 
chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That's exactly the picture that we're seeing in this psalm. We've got a ruler and we've got one of his counselors and they're conspiring together against the Lord's anointed. Third, David focuses our attention on the wicked mouth of the enemy. Doag used his words as a weapon, knowing that the minute he opened his mouth, blades and spears would follow. The, the truth would be slashed and the souls would be slain. How would this story have gone different if Doag would have just said, I saw David with Abimelech or Ahimelech at the temple and, and not filled in all the color commentary about being a supporter of David and helping David and instead slowed down and said, well, let's hear Ahimelech's side of the story. Right? The proverb says that when one person comes to you, their story sounds true until the second person comes. Right? But there's none of that here. He uses his words in a way that creates death. Jesus reminds us of this truth in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. All throughout 1 Samuel, there's a, a picture there. Uh, kind of an underlying theme of a person who is wor uh, worshiping and reverent to Yahweh, David, and the person who is not, Saul. That, that's kind of an underlying meta narrative. As you're reading through that book, understand there's this constant contrast between someone who loves God and someone who hates God. And the psalmist wants us to understand and see that not only is Saul one that hates God, but so is Doeg. He, he is also one that hates God. As does Paul, like Jesus, speaking of the entire human race in Romans chapter 3, the, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom, of, the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. But just as quickly... Though as these words can come out of the evil man's mouth, that's how fast God's judgment will come. And that's the second part of this psalm in verse 5. But God will break you down forever in verse 5. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The man uses his tongue for violence and as quickly as we can say a word that creates death, the Lord and his judgment will come and rip them out of the ground. Mighty as we might think we are, mighty as this man, Doag, might have thought he was, he will not stand when God breaks him down. God's destruction of the wicked will never stop. Notice it says there, but God will break you down for 10 years. Forever. God's destruction of the wicked will never stop. 
No, no matter how safe the wicked may feel, the Lord is able to snatch them and uproot them from their lives. And this is contrasted again by the blessed man who the Bible says is like a tree planted by streams of water. The, the wicked man is going to be uprooted from the land of life. He will not flourish like the blessed man. And the last part of this psalm is in verses 6 through 9. The repentant trust in God's love and praise him. David details the response of the righteous in these verses. Starting in verse 6 through 7, the, the repentant like God will laugh at their enemies when justice is finally served. Those who trusted in their wealth or their status instead of trusting in God at that point will seem foolish. This is to be understood as a warning of the coming destruction. This, this time period here that David is mentioning is before the judgment. So, so there's this tearing out, this, uh, this, this, this uprooting that will happen that the repentant who are in Christ, who are hidden in Christ, who have received his mercy will see. And, and that is shared so that we will all be warned and understand there is a coming destruction. David wants us to see that destruction is certain. And that destruction will cause celebration in the hearts of all those who are finally vindicated and avenged. Doag was, was a man whose treachery brought about the murder of children and infants in the land of Nob. Those he wronged will be satisfied when justice is done upon them. David closes this psalm by describing himself as a flourishing tree in God's house, like in Psalm 1. David then is describing this, this everlasting trust in God's steadfast love. That, that faith in God's character is saving faith that transforms and enables the obedience. And again, he's, he's contrasting here the, the unrighteous being ripped out of the ground Right, you you have a a a a tree that is malnourished and about to die, and it's just very easy to pull it up out of the ground. But when you have a healthy tree, whose roots run deep, right? David's saying that that's the kind of man that God has made me. And there's this contrast happening again throughout this psalm. In verse nine, David says that he will praise God forever because of what God. Has accomplished. God has defeated the wicked and established the right. The, the final triumph has not yet come to pass. So David asserts that he will wait for God's name to be exalted because he believes that God is good. And he surrounds himself with those that are marked by the Lord's own loving kindness. So what, what can we learn from this somewhat simple psalm this morning? Working our way backwards through this psalm, I want to give you a couple of ways I think we should apply this psalm this morning. First, I would say that Psalm 52 is useful to our souls. It's useful to our souls as we read it and we pray through it especially when we are wronged by evil men. 
And again, if it hasn't happened to you yet, at some point it will. And so for you to have these words, to be able to read through and to pray through, it it reassures us of what is right and what is wrong. And it, it will enable you to do what I couldn't do the first time I read through it, which is to pray Romans or, or to obey Romans twelve nineteen, which says, Never repay evil for evil. Do not take vengeance, but leave it to the Lord, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. Again, when, when I challenged myself and I asked myself that question, what would I do in that situation? It wasn't that. And and I need a psalm like this to read through and to pray through in those times when I feel as though I'm being just overtaken by evil men in my life. It's important for us to pray psalms like 52, 53, and 54 while we wait for Romans 12, 19 to be ultimately fulfilled. And some of you may be sitting here this morning thinking, I would never pray these words. I mean, I want to I encourage you that you not be more pious than the Bible. This, this is our temptation sometimes, I think. It is to, to start thinking that we are more holy than the inspired Holy Spirit. He is giving us these words to pray. And, and, and it, it's easy for us to walk around and think, well, I, I'm above that. I'm beyond that. I don't let these things bother me. You may say that. But do you believe it? And so it's okay for us to, to pray and say things the way David says and prays things like, We look forward to this day that that we will laugh like God laughs at those who trust in their riches. They they trust in their reputation and their prestige rather than trusting in God. On that day when we are vindicated and we have joy because God is a God of justice. And as a people of justice, we should be excited. We should be happy when that justice is carried out. As one commentator put it, don't think that you're going to achieve a righteous standard of love or sympathy or something like this that is better than God's own standard. That is inspired by the Holy Spirit in this psalm. So first, I think this psalm is good for us to pray to read, to remember, to meditate on when we are dealing with evil men. Second, and this, bear with me, I think this is actually a blessing to the wicked as well. I I think that these words are a blessing for the wicked to hear. And what I mean by that It's because it's through the confrontation of judgment that they will come to realize that they are in danger. Again, all of this is happening pre-judgment. All these words are pre-judgment. 
And and I believe that this is a part of God's steadfast love for men. That, That it's through this confrontation of the truth that they would learn that they've actually done something wrong. Again, if you're just thinking in a worldly way, you might look at Doag and say, well, he made a pretty smart move financially. He set his family up, right? And it's only when they're confronted with the truth that they begin to realize, well, maybe what I did was not right. And by learning this, they they come to realize that if they don't turn, they too will be destroyed. And so God offering these words is actually a kindness. Because this is what the Lord uses to turn people to himself. It's what the Lord uses to make people realize that that, that I need somebody to save me from the wrath of God that is coming. The judgment is sure. It will happen. Now, if, if that is where you find yourself this morning, I want to share some good news with you. David was a liar, an adulterer, a murderer, and yet, because he repented... The Bible says that he was a man after God's own heart. The good news this morning is that no matter what you have done, you you can't be sitting there thinking, oh, but you don't know I've done this. David did worse probably. And if he didn't, countless others have. No matter what you have thought, And no matter what you have done this morning, if you confess and repent of your sins and be baptized, God will see you as a man or woman after his own heart. God gives you this warning out of his loving kindness so that you will be able to avoid his wrath. That's why I think these words this morning from this psalm to the wicked are actually a blessing. So that when a wicked person reads this, they don't just go, oh, well, there's nothing, nothing for me to do. No, just flip back one chapter and go to Psalm 51 and see that we need to confess and repent of our sin. It's interesting the juxtaposition of 51 lined up with three evil, foolish, backstabbing men. (laughs) Right? God wants us to confess and repent and believe and be baptized and follow him in faith. If that's you this morning, come, come and talk to me. If, you, if you're in a small group, talk to your small group leader. Let these words be a kindness to you to bring you to God's loving kindness. Third, the guards had a line that they wouldn't cross. Which led Doag to cross that line. Where's your line this morning? Do you have a line? Now I would encourage you, just like trying to be more pious than the Bible, the danger and the temptation is to create lines Sometimes that God doesn't even create. But we live in a time 
like all times. There's nothing special about our time. Okay? We live in a time where we have to decide. Are we going to honor God or are we going to honor man? A hundred years ago, it was the same question. A thousand years ago, it was the same question. Were the details different? Sure. But was the question the same? Yes. Are you going to honor God or are you going to honor men? And more and more in your workplaces, at school, with your families, with your friends, you're going to have to ask yourself, where is that line? The guards, they knew where that line was. They weren't going to lay a hand on God's anointed priests. This morning, I want to challenge you to think about that this morning. Where is that line? Fourth, Psalm 52 reminds us that it's a great mistake for us to treat our words lightly. Our words can either build people up or tear them down. Our words can work all kinds of evil that we find condemned in this psalm. And it's easy to read a psalm like this and think, I would never do something like Doag and Saul did. Those are really bad people, right? Our minds may have even been sitting here this morning and thinking about other people that, man, they really need to hear this message. Maybe I'll send them a link, right? Maybe I'll share this with them because they really need to hear this. But the reality is this morning, we all need to hear this. Remember Paul calling out the entire human race? on a very similar charge that David is making against Doag's mouth in Romans 3 that I read earlier. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Paul's saying that, that's us. (laughs) That's not them. That's us. Proverbs 21, 23, he who guards his mouth And his tongue guards his soul from trouble. It's important for us this morning to remember that it would be a great mistake to not treat our words with care. So many people have been cut down because of a sentence. And one of the things that I hear whenever this topic is brought up is, well, I'm just being honest. Then be honest in your head. Keep your mouth shut. Because we bring destruction upon people with the words that we say. Just this week, I had to confess to somebody and repent because they gave me a series of things 
of unfortunate events that I responded very poorly to, both on my face and out of my mouth. Right? Some of you don't just stop with your tongue, work on your face too. We say a lot of nonverbal things with our face, right? But but I, I just had to acknowledge like that was a lot of information all at once and I responded poorly to you. And it's not my desire to hurt you, but to help you. But I realized what I said would probably make you never want to come to me for help. Because there was one more detail they didn't tell me until after I opened my mouth. If I would have just kept my mouth shut, (laughs) I would have been fine. Watch your tongue. Watch how you talk to people and how you treat people. We don't want to be people whose tongues are like razors. Finally, David tells Ahimelech's only living relative in 1 Samuel 22-23, Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safekeeping. Do not be afraid. This is the only time those words are ever recorded, David saying, to a man who's lost everything and everyone that he loves and he cares about. But the son of David that is greater than David says those words 20 times to his followers. This morning, stay close to Jesus. Live for Jesus and be willing to die for Jesus because only Jesus can preserve your soul. If you stay close to him, you shall be in his safekeeping. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us these psalms, for knowing that we would also have to deal with evil men and women. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to meditate upon these words, to pray these words, to encourage one another with these words. And Lord, this morning, if there is anyone here that stands on the other side of that judgment, I I pray this morning that they would confess and repent and believe and follow you in baptism. And that they would stay close to Jesus. And he would keep them safe. And Father, for those of us that are here this morning that 
perhaps realize that we too have let our tongues be like razors and have cut people and hurt people. May we confess and repent of that and turn back to you, the one who is faithful to forgive. And help us, as Psalm 51 says, to go with a contrite heart back to those people and love them. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit do what only your Holy Spirit can do and convict our hearts of where we have sinned to bring us to a place not of depression but confession. And that we would confess and repent this morning and then come and partake and celebrate the ability that we have to stay close to Jesus through this symbolic act of taking his body and dipping it into the wine and eating it, representing just how intimately close you are with us this morning. You have given us your Holy Spirit to to live and dwell within us, Lord. And this act reminds us of the, the proximity that you have to us, Lord. May we praise you this morning as we come and we celebrate the Lord's